This morning I want to preach from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Message entitled, A Servant Like Christ. You know, we often come, even as Christians, the Christian life, and we get this wicked idea that somehow Jesus saved us so we can have a better life. And that so he's just looking to whatever we want to do, we can do a little bit better because now we're Christians. Instead of being a servant like he called us to be. In this passage, verses 1 through 13, we're going to see in order to be a servant that pleases the Lord so that one day you can hear from him, well done, faithful servant. See, it's not just your standard, but his standard. There are three things we need. First of all, we need a right thinking. Secondly, we need a right example to follow. And thirdly, we need a right relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how powerful it is, how sharp it is. Even to us as believers, it cuts down to the bone. So, Lord, you might do that spiritual surgery on us and make us your children that you want us to be. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace every day. Lord, especially on this day, we celebrate your life. Now, Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher and that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, that the word might have its way in our life, that we will not be just hearers of the word, but obedient. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Warren Wiersbe said, the secret of joy in, in spite of circumstances is a single mind, our focus. But the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. The key verse here is verse three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's a tough place to stay. In fact, without grace, you can't even get there. To serve in a way that the people you serve, when they're obstinate, when they're ornery, when they don't appreciate what you're doing, they don't see how important you are to the ministry that God has placed you in. And especially it's hurtful when Christians don't see that. To keep our focus on the Lord and to realize the most important thing that we can be called is a servant of God. A servant of God. If we're to be known as godly people, we have to be known like our Savior, people that serve. So we want to be a servant, not to our own standards, but servants like Christ. The first six verses are right thinking. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion is being a little bit facetious, isn't he? The comfort, the encouragement the love that we've received when we receive Christ as our Savior, the life that we got. He's just reminding us. Paul said this, and make my joy complete by being unified, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is that? 
to worship God by serving where he wants us and how he wants us to serve. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul said, I don't even judge myself. There's one that judges us, and that's Jesus. So no matter how important we think we are to the task that we have, a fellow said one time, put your hand in a bucket of water and pull it out, and the hole that you leave is a space that you'll leave when you leave earth. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. But praise God, he's chosen to use us when we are available. We get to be a part of what God is doing. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the mind of Christ. A lot of people walk around, they'll have the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Then they make it up as they go. But what did Jesus do? Here is such an amazing, an amazing look at the humiliation of our Savior how he humbled himself, where he came from, who he was. And so we have the right example. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped after. This morning I hope that the Lord shows you something maybe in your life that you're grasping after. There's something left in your life, say, no, Lord, I need this still. And Lord, I need this to be happier. I need this to be satisfied. I need this actually to to do what you want me to do. Lord, I need this. The Bible says that for John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him, the Son of God who became Jesus, without him, nothing was made that was made. Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The second person of the Godhead, who would become our Savior, spoke the worlds into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I want to show you just a short film clip to maybe just visually give us a perspective of the immensity of this one who came to die for us. The sun is 93 million miles away. And that means, in actuality, it's immense. You could fit a million Earths inside the sun. It's over a million kilometers in diameter. Yet our sun is tiny compared to the really big stars out there. Eta Carinae, over five million times larger than our sun. Betelgeuse, 300 times larger than Eta Carinae. If it was our sun, it would reach as far out as Jupiter. And then there's this monster, V.Y. Canis Majoris, the largest star ever discovered, a billion times bigger than our sun. 
Now, Ryan informed me, and I saw this also. I just like the way that filmed it. This not the largest sun. They've discovered even larger stars than that, maybe 10 more, as they continue to look at our universe. So what does it have to do with, with this Easter message this morning? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He breathed the stars out. How powerful is God? When the Bible says in Hebrews that, that our God is a consuming fire, what does that mean? That, that star that's not even the largest one, V.Y. Canis Majoris, remember, 1.3 million earths can fit inside of our sun, right? 1.3 million earths. This thing is so monstrous that 9.3 billion of our suns can fit in that star. If you were able to fly an airplane at 560 miles per hour to go around that star, it would take you 1,100 years. He breathed it out. There are at least two to 400 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Two to 400 million in our galaxy. Billion, I mean. There are at least 100 billion galaxies and they think probably closer to a trillion. They just don't have the ability to see them yet. Our Savior, the second person of the Godhead, breathed out those stars. So when we think about what God might call you to or how important you are to your ministry and how you just can't humble yourself to maybe take God's way or maybe you've come to Christ you say, well, I don't think I need to be baptized when he's called you to be baptized. You think, wow, how far did he get? We will never, no matter how low we go, be able to match the servanthood of our Savior. He spoke the worlds into existence, and then he humbled himself, and he became the God-man. Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Do you know that for all eternity, Jesus is going to be human? He's 100% God, the hypostatic union, but he became 100% man. He surrendered, for the most part, the use of his attributes while he lived on earth so that he might be a faithful example to us to live like him because we can always come up, you've probably done it, I've probably done it. Well, that was Jesus, and I'm not Jesus if you're a believer this morning, you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit live, live, living within you, that's no excuse. But what he's done in salvation is given you a, a chance. And that is the, the opportunity, the potential, now that you're a believer, to submit to his will. Old gospel song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to his cross I cling no deals. Lord, I am available. What do you want for my life? Now, if we would have sent our son to earth, this very special person, we would have, knowing how the world, world is and how it operates, no doubt sent him to a king's house, a very strong king's house, with lots of bodyguards, and said, God sent him to a faithful, godly couple's home, humble, poor, Born in a manger. 
He came into his own and his own, even his own family received him not. He grew up to be a craftsman, to work with his hands, to be a carpenter, to be a mason. He served people. Wearsby says, when Christ was born at Bethlehem, he entered into a permanent union with humanity from which there could be no escape. He willingly humbled himself that he might lift us up. The next verse says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The creator God, the God-man, becomes the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, because of our sin. John MacArthur says, Peter could not even conceive of the Messiah being put to death, less, much less being put to death upon a horrifying, humiliating, accursed cross. This curse of Deuteronomy 21-23 meant that he was outside God's covenant, banned from his people and his blessing, but Jesus bore the curse for believers to bring them to God and to glory. In God's perfect plan, the crucifixion of his son not only was acceptable, but mandatory. Jesus was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning after spending the whole night awake in illegal trials, being beat in the face by soldiers, being abused and spit upon and then beaten with a cat of nine tails, 29 lashes, leading to tremendous loss of blood. And when Pilate brought him out before the crowd, he was hoping the crowd would have pity because he found no fault in him, but he wanted to stop the riot. So he brought Jesus out and he said, behold the man. What shall I do with your king who is called the Christ? And the murderous crowd said, crucify him. Crucify him. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was taken and crucified just outside the city. And the Pharisees and the leadership paraded in front of the cross, shooting out their lip and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. When Peter had met the soldiers coming to arrest Jesus in the garden, he pulled out his sword and took a swing at Malchus' head and missed and just got his ear. And Jesus said, put away your sword, Peter. He healed Malchus' ear. And then he told his disciples, do you not know that I could call legions of angels to come and rescue me? As those walked in front and they mocked the God of glory, the creator of God, the only hope for their salvation, he could have called for angels, but we know he didn't even have to do that. He could have thought the, world, the word and we could have exploded out of existence. He spoke the worlds into existence. He could have spoken the worlds out of existence, but he hung there. And then from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it wasn't Satan pouring his wrath out on Jesus. It was God the Father. Because sin had to be paid for. You depreciate your sin. We depreciate our sin and say, well, it's not that bad. It's not, and we compare ourselves to one another and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. My sin's not as bad as the people that are in jail. But the people are in jail, they can say, well, we're not as bad as the people that are in Rollins. And the people in Rollins say, well, we're not as bad as those, those people that are in Attica prison or some of those really big prisons. We're not that bad. And yet the standard is not one another. 
The standard is that holy God that spoke the worlds into existence. The question is this morning, do you need a savior? Say, well, I don't think I'm that bad. Romans 3.19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What does the law say? The law says, you shall not murder. So well, I've never murdered anybody. Have you ever hated anyone? Because Jesus, the one who wrote the law, says, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. God looks at you and says, if you hate somebody, you're guilty. Have you ever lied? Well, just little ones. Guilty. The law says, you shall not commit adultery. So, well, I, I, I haven't done that. Jesus said, if you just look at a woman to lust after you, God sees your heart. Hebrews 4 says that all things are naked and open with whom we have to do. He sees. You don't have to try to justify yourself with anybody else. He sees your attitude. He sees what you're doing. And he says, if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty. So we've just looked at three, just three of the, the laws that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. If you've ever lusted, if you've ever told a lie, if you've ever hated anybody, you're already guilty as a lying, murdering adulterer. So if today you stood before God on your own, as good as you think you might be, would you be innocent or guilty knowing that God knows all things? Well, the obvious answer is you'd be guilty. But God committed his love and then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A righteous man might die for his friend. A good, a, good, a good man would die for a righteous friend. But God committed his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, when we were the enemies of God, he died for us. There's that opportunity. God calls all to Repentance. Paul was preaching in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. And he said in the Old Testament, in the old times, God winked at sin. How did God wink at sin? He opened the ground up and swallowed sinners. But now, since Jesus has died and given that opportunity, he commands all men everywhere to repent. See, that's the first place of surrender. Think of what Jesus and where he's come from. From almighty, omnipotent, omniscient creator to servant for our sins. He died for his enemies. It's a matter of surrender. Jesus surrendered, became human, and then surrendered to our need, even the death and the cross, for you personally. You see, if you're the only one that would have ever responded to his offer, he would have died for you. It's not just a generic thing. And it's the only way. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the thing is, you don't know that you have tomorrow. And James, James writes, and he says, what is your life but a little vapor that appears for a time then vanishes away? You don't know that you have tomorrow. Today is your only opportunity to submit to this God 
who became man, who became the sacrifice for your sin. Verse 9, he is the king. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. Do you remember John 17, the high priestly prayer? The very beginning when Jesus is praying and he's already prayed, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then he prayed, Father, I fulfilled your will. I've been faithful. Now restore me to that glory which I had before the world began. For this reason, because he was obedient, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And oh, what a day that's going to be when we are reunited, reunited with our Savior to see him face to face with all the saints of all time and all the angels and that great arena of worship to sing together, worthy is the lamb that was slain who has redeemed to himself some from every tongue, nation, and people group from all the earth. But not only is the king, he's the judge. Verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every lost person. The Bible says there in Revelation 19 that the sea and the earth will give up its dead. And they will stand at a great white throne judgment. That's the place for all, for only unbelievers. And they will be judged out of the books according to their works. You don't want to be judged by your works. You don't want to be judged by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this whoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into everlasting punishment. A lake that burns with fire and brimstone. He's also the judge. And you get this opportunity while you live and breathe to submit to the king because he came the first time not to judge the world but to save the world, but he's coming back as the king, as the judge. Revelation 19, 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the judge. You submit to him in this life or you submit to him and be cast into eternity. You say, why do you say that? Jesus, because he loved people, talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus said, listen, if it's your hand that's keeping you from coming, cut your hand off. If it's your eye, pluck your eye out. It's better to enter into life maimed and blind than it is into eternity whole without Jesus Christ. Jesus ought to be the most natural thing for us to speak about and worship. But he's been relegated out of our life. And sometimes we as believers buy into it too. Well, you can't talk about Jesus here. Says who? He's the king. Oh, you might get in trouble. But if God calls you to speak, if you're his servant, 
you speak. You speak the truth in love, just like he did. But you know, all of the, the facts cannot give you the ability to be the servant God wants you to be. You have to have a right relationship. And when you became partaker of Jesus Christ by receiving him as your savior, you got his life. You got his spiritual DNA. You got his want to's, his desires. And with it comes his grace as you seek to obey him. The power and the desire to be found obedient. Verse 12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence also, but now also much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's one thing to obey mom and dad when they're standing there, right? You can clean up your language, look like a good boy, look like a good girl, but it's when they're away. And the apostle Paul is telling them, listen, it doesn't matter if I'm there or not. The proof of who you are is going to come out. And if Christ is inside, that's what can come out. In John 6, remember Jesus had fed the 5,000. And then he got in a boat and went to their place on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And the next day the crowds started finding out where he was. And then they went to find him again. Because you would work a whole day just for the food for the day in those times. And so having free something to eat was a wonderful thing. So the crowds came. And he said, it's sad that you didn't even recognize the miracle that was done among you because he multiplied the bread and the fish miraculously to feed them. They said, well, in the Old Testament, in the old times, God gave our fathers the bread of heaven. He said, no, he gave them manna. You know what manna means? What is it? They went on the ground, they said, what is it? In the morning, there would be the manna there. And they went out, well, there, there's the what is it? And so they would take it and they could make things to eat. They called that the bread of heaven, but they still died, didn't they? You can eat the best whole food, natural food without any chemicals, and you're still going to die. And no matter how much preservatives are in it, you're still going to die. So Jesus said, no, 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 that was manna. I'm the bread of heaven. And so they said, well, then evermore, give us this bread. He began to teach them the doctrine, the teaching of his substitutionary sacrifice. And he said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, he was speaking spiritually. When we're going to take communion here in a little bit, you don't get spiritual. You don't get saved by the elements in spite of what some teachers teach. Now, what the Bible says, it says, do it to remember me, not to get salvation. And people heard this and they said, what? Eat his flesh, drink his blood? What happens when you eat food? Your body takes it, the wonderful body that God has given you, takes it and turns it in energy and prolongs your life. It gives you life. The animals, the plants that died so you could have food, you, you get their life. He said, but when you partake of Jesus Christ, you get his life. And he said, when God calls you to something, he's going to give you the grace, the power, and the desire to be obedient because you've partaken of his life, his life. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
the God who spoke the worlds into existence, the God that breathed out the stars, the God that died personally for your sin calls you to serve. And he didn't leave you there with just the rules. What he expected, he gave you the Holy Spirit. He gave you grace. So you could be obedient that one day you could hear from him. Well done, faithful servant. You see, you're not going to get prizes for how much you ended up of the world in this life. Jesus wrote to John the apostle that all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's of the world and the world's passing away and the lust thereof. All these things the world says are important. We need a call to service and think like Jesus thought. Paul teaches the doctrine of salvation all the way up to chapter 12 of Romans. And then he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of God's great mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him. This is your reasonable service, or this is your service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world's thinking pollute your Christian mind. So they say, well, this is important, and this is important. You need to hold on to this and hold on to that and get a little bit of this so you can have a nice life here. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might find out what is that good, acceptable, the perfect will of God, the place of service, hands open, hearts full, obedient. Father, we thank you for your love for us. What a thing that you would choose us to be saved and then allow us to be a part of what you're doing by serving one another as we serve you and placing us that we might serve the lost, that they too might hear of a Savior that spoke the worlds into existence and became man, humbled himself under the death of the cross, rose again from the dead, now is highly exalted once again as the king, but in love sends the Holy Spirit. Lord, convict hearts of sin. Draw folks to yourself. Lord, convict us as believers that we might come with empty hands, open hands, to say, Lord, I'm available. What would you have me to do? Because, Lord, we want to hear from you. Well done. And then we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.